Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster. I'm Caroline Hepke. This is your daily guide to British politics. Well, a government report commissioned in the wake of Black Lives Matter and the protests have found that the UK should be considered a model for other white majority countries. The Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities has found that children from many ethnic minority communities do at least as well or better than white pupils at school and that people's lives are more determined in Britain by social class and family structure. And whilst the 264-page report found that Britain was not institutionally racist, it did find that Britain is not a post-racial society and that outright racism, especially online, persists. Well, we're going to talk about the response to uh, some of this uh, uh, reporting. The Runnymede Trust, for example, saying that it has felt deeply and massively let down by the report and that for a government commission to look into institutional racism and deny its existence is deeply worrying. Uh, Before we speak to the Runnymede Trust, though, I'd like to bring in Sean Bailey, Conservative candidate for Mayor of London in the upcoming elections. Sean Thank you so much for being with us on Bloomberg Westminster. I'd like to start on this report. Accusations that it's a denial, possibly even a whitewash when it comes to the state of racism in Britain. I'd be interested to know what you make of it. Um, first of all, hello to you and all of your listeners. Uh, look, I, I haven't seen a detail of reports, but I, I don't see it as a denial. It's trying to talk about how we move forward. As a country, we've written many reports and done many studies on racism. And I think we, nobody's trying to suggest it doesn't exist. I think what people are trying to do is make sure we look at some of the progress we've made as a nation. If our, con- if our con- conversation around race is constantly one of failure, people will, will have a fatigue there. We do have to acknowledge some of the success we've had. Have we travelled far enough? No, but there has been some significant changes from when I was a boy till now. And, mm-hmm. and I think that needs to be registered. OK. Britain is not institutionally racist. I think that was one line that has stood out to people, even without sort of reading the detail. Do you think that that claim stands up to scrutiny? I think the term institutionally racist means different things to different people. And also, to my mind, it's often quite lazy. It means if you're sat in your office, you can say, well, it's the institution, not me. It means you don't have to do your bit. You change some policies and things continue the way they are. 
I think when you say institutionally racist as well, if you come from a poor white community or a poor black community, you, you, you don't feel like you're part of that because you don't feel privileged at all. So where, where does the change come? How, how do you change an institution? Is, of course, the people in it. If I change the policies in your, in your office, it doesn't matter unless you change the way you behave. So institutionally racism, racism I think, needs to be looked at. We need a, more, a, a modern term that has more personal responsibility in it and has more real impactful steps. We also need to challenge ourselves and our communities to do as much as they can for themselves and as part of the wider sort of mainstream Britain. Mm, yes, uh, let's pick up on that point. I mean, the, the report um, talks about the persistent disadvantages of some groups of white people, as well as the disadvantages of some um, black or ethnic minority groups too. And therefore, it recommends targeting inequality broadly rather than specific groups. Do you think that that really cuts it, though, for black or Asian or other disadvantaged minority groups? If you're from a disadvantaged minority group or a disadvantaged white group, you, you suffer the same things. Racism is definitely a particular thing, and, and that needs to be dealt with in a particular way. But, for instance, poor, poor communities suffer from crime, be they black or white. So let's do something about crime. It's one of my major focuses in London. You know, criminals don't think, well, I won't rob these people, they're white, or I will rob them because they're black. Victims are victims. And I think we need to be careful about separating people out because, of course, you, you, you start animosity going as well. And as much of this conversation is about hearts as minds as it is about about um, policy. And I'm slightly wary of people using the plight of black communities up and down the country, non-white communities for their own political gain. Let's think about how we move everybody forward. Mm. As a black politician yourself, have you felt racism in Britain? Is it something that you have thought about during your political career on a personal level? I've certainly thought about it on a personal level. Of course, I, I was born in an area where there was an NF office. And, and for those who are a bit younger than I am, NF is was in the national front. It's to chase us down the road. It's literally fight for survival. I've been to job interviews where people have said, well, mm, your face wouldn't fit. But the point was, was that the institution or was it the individual? And if you constantly terrorise people around race and don't give them room to improve, um, the situation won't, 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 won't move on, will it? It won't move on. And that's why I'm always focused on how do we help a community become part of the wider Britain and not ghettoise us by continuing to talk about us as separate, as needing something different because we are different. People need to look at their own behaviour and then m m model that through the, through the power structures they have. You're running for Mayor of London, 6th of May, the vote. Um, let's talk about some of the big issues. I mean, you mentioned crime. It is going up. There are growing concerns in London about um, particularly serious crimes, um, physical crimes, knife crime and, and more. How do you think that you can do a better job on that very difficult issue than the current mayor, let's say, Sadiq Khan? We need an entirely fresh approach to crime, a fresh start. And there's three ends of this argument. Is there? Firstly, is the policing end. That's why you hear me talking about 8,000 extra police officers on the streets of London. Sadiq Khan said that the streets are no longer safe for women and girls, which is a massive failure on his part, an absolutely massive failure. So there's mm. things we do. We, we double the amount of transport network police. We put CCTV cameras on every bus stop. We, we put 500 extra officers into the safeguarding unit, which looks at the issues around rape, attack, um, domestic violence, issues facing women and girls largely. And we, give, and we do that in order for them to do the preemptive work as well, not just the reactive work. At the yeah. other end of the, 
of the equation, we also make sure that we give poor communities the support they need. So I'll be building a second chance fund. So those young people who go in and out of jail, we intervene at that teachable moment and give them the support they need to move into the job market, not just to warehouse them in jails. Okay. The Conservative Party, though, presided over the biggest cuts in police numbers uh, in recent years. Um, Would you be in a better position than Sadiq Khan to try to advocate for London um, with central government to increase those numbers, for example, for police on the streets? Two things to be said. Firstly, one of the mayor's first acts as mayor of London was to cut £38 million from the policing budget. So if he believed it was all about money, that's a very bizarre step to take. The second thing to say about London is we've had no leadership, no political leadership when it came to dealing with crime in London. Remember, the mayor started off by saying it would take 10 years to solve knife crime therefore removing any responsibility for himself. He then went on, 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 on to say that he, he wanted stop and search, he didn't want stop and search. The point I'm making here is we need proper, clear leadership for the police and by the police from City Hall. Because remember, the Mayor of London is a police and crime commissioner for London and he hasn't been clear about how he wants London policed. That's the first piece, taking responsibility for you. How would you secure, on another topic, um, the future of Transport for London, um, it's reliant upon money that comes in from fares, unlike the transport networks of most other big cities around the world, which sort of are given essentially government funding. Um, how, I mean, no, no transport, essentially no city. So kind of coming back from the pandemic, how are you going to try to rebuild TfL? There's two things to be said here. Firstly, the government made it quite clear they will cover the cost of TfL, they won't cover the cost of Khan. Remember, the mayor had bankrupted TfL long before Corona had broken out, and that's where his he's quarrel with the government comes from. So the government has made it quite clear with a sizable bailout said given that they'll keep TfL going and that they understand that getting uh, crippling TfL simply does not benefit anyone. We all agree on that. The way, actually, to get TfL to be financed properly, I will be building a London infrastructure bank to the tune of £10.9 billion. And having Sidney Carter's mayor has been a wasted five years. He could have did this five years ago, and we'd had so much more money in the system. And remember this, many businesses across London have been paying extra business rates to deliver um, Crossrail, which he failed to deliver, which has cost us £5.1 billion collectively. That is why he's having a tough time negotiating with the government, because instead of being even-handed and fair about his failure, he's tried to play politics, and now civil servants and the government just don't find him trustworthy. Hmm. Okay. Um, what about uh, trustworthiness in the city in terms of women? Um, the Sarah Everard vigil uh, was, you know, by all accounts, a complete disaster. Uh, although the official report has cleared the Met sort of heavy-handed policing, the vigil organisers remain very angry. They have responded saying that it's silencing and belittling women. Is there a danger of women in London losing confidence in the police? And how would you rebuild that? There's two things to say about confidence in the police in London. The mayor of London is the police. He should have leapt to conclusions about any inquiry that we're going to have. It put the police in a, in a funny place and also meant that it damaged confidence in police. Because to be clear, the Sarah Everard visual was badly handled, but the mayor should have represented people, the people of London, particularly women. And if anybody's doubting me, when he thought it was politically useful for him, Extension Rebellion, he turned up and told the police what he wanted done. When it came to Sarah Everard's vigil, he could not be found. So what should he have done differently for that vigil then, to be clear? 
he should have went to the meeting with the police, Cressida Dick, and said, I want the vigil to go ahead. The organisers have given several great ideas of how it could go ahead. If he didn't like those ideas, he could have asked for something else to happen. Instead, he removed himself and said it's between the government and the police. He knows that's not true because he is statutorily in charge of the police. And of course, he demonstrated that when he stepped in and helped Extinction Rebellion shut London down for two days. The point is, as mayor of London, you have to show leadership. You cannot pick and choose who you support. You have to support everyone. And the Sarah Everard case in particular, I really do believe the women of London deserve that support. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's have a look at what is going on in the world of politics this morning. The economy bounced back more strongly than first thought in the last six months of 2020. The Office for National Statistics says that it grew by 16.9% and 1.3% in the third and fourth quarters, respectively. But their figures also do show that the UK's overall GDP fell by nearly 10% last year as a result of the pandemic. It's also the last day today that nearly 4 million vulnerable people in England and Wales are being advised to shield from COVID. The numbers of infection and patients in hospital have actually declined dramatically in recent weeks. But those who have been careful are still being urged to keep working from home where possible. And lastly, Labour has renewed its calls for a full investigation into David Cameron's ties to Greensill Capital after a business card emerged that appeared to confirm that its founder had a role at the heart of Downing Street. The business card, which was handed to Labour by a business contact, who said that they received it back in 2012, describes the founder of Greensill Capital, Lex Greensill, as, quote, senior advisor, prime minister's office. It also gives a personal number 10 email address. A source close to Greensill confirmed to the Guardian newspaper that the card was genuine. They say that it dated from a period when he held the title senior advisor a position they say he was appointed to by the civil service. So that Greensill story, the latest on it for you this morning. Let's move on now, though, and discuss the findings from the government's Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, which has been criticised by campaigners and has led to a race equality think tank, the Runnymede Trust, being particularly critical. The Runnymede Trust says that it has failed to address structural and institutional racism in the UK. Joining me now is Alba Kapoor, Policy Officer at the Runnymede Trust. Alba, thank you so much for being with me. This is a big report, 264 pages, makes uh, about 24 different recommendations. I suppose the big standout line is that Britain is not institutionally racist. What's your response? Look, nine months after thousands swept the streets to call out racial injustice, after countless black and ethnic minority groups suffered as a result of COVID-19, and this report, this landmark report from the government, meant to address deeply held issues with institutional racism says that it doesn't exist. Um, and quite frankly, it's nothing more than a fig leaf produced by a government that would rather sh- uh, cover up the shocking reality of racial discrimination in our society than take meaningful steps to address it. 
Well, to be fair to the report, it says that outside outright racism still persists, and especially online, that Britain is not a post-racial society, and that they are basing their evidence on data, um, and that it shows that uh, it's actually to do with your family and social class that actually determines the future of of uh, children's lives in the Britain in Britain rather than simply race. It's very clear that um, to describe institutional racism or the realities of institutional racism as a product of idealism by young people, as this report does, does a lot to deny the and fail to acknowledge the suffering of black and ethnic minority communities and indeed deny the reality that racism exists in our institutions, in our health service, in our criminal justice system and across the board. And you have to look no further than the facts to see this. Black women are four times more likely to die at childbirth than white women. Young black men are 19 times more likely to be stopped and searched by the police. These are the realities that the Commission should have sought to engage with. Instead, they've produced some some recommendations around the terminology that we use to to describe ethnic minority groups, um, whether or not we should extend school hours. These go nowhere near to the heart of the problem. And that is what really denies the realities of institutional racism does. The idea, though, also that in these recommendations seems to be um, that that equality and opportunity is something that needs to be opened up for all groups, because they also highlight, again, a, a sort of long-standing concern within the UK, which is that that um, some groups of of poor white Britons are also kind of in disadvantaged situations, and therefore it's talking about. Um, trying to offer more opportunities for everybody and not target them at individual groups. Explain why, and and individual minority groups in particular. Tell me why you think that that is the wrong answer. So again, I have to go back to the realities that racial discrimination in society plays out in our institutions and in the very real outcomes faced by black and ethnic minority groups. To deny that is to deny the experience of black and ethnic minority people during the COVID-19 crisis, when they are confronted by the police in the criminal justice system. It cannot be all a question of uh, experiences according to socioeconomic status. You have to recognise the very real connection between racial discrimination and uh, class experiences as well. Okay. Um, I mean, the idea, they focus particularly on on academic outcomes, um, saying that uh, black and ethnic minority pupils do as well, if not better, than white pupils, uh, at least, uh, yeah, th- 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 they were talking about children at school doing reasonably well, that that it should be a benchmark actually for other um, minor- majority white countries around the world. Do you think it should be held up as a as an example for how education should be carried out in other countries? Look, the report goes as far to claim that education is the most emphatic success story of, of the British ethnic minority experience. I have to ask how this can be the case when over the last five years there were 60,000 recorded incidents of racist harassment in schools. If school children are fearing going to school because they will be confronted with racism and racial harassment, can that really be called a success story? And I think it's really important that these figures don't disguise the realities that we have in our schools. The fact that black Caribbean students are six times more likely to be excluded from school is not raised at all in this 
in this report, or at least is what, at what is being touted about this report so far. And that is a crucial statistic that you cannot uh, forget when we talk about education. So we need to talk about what the realities are on the ground. And that is not as it's being presented in this report. Okay, so what about extending school days or giving children from disadvantaged backgrounds a better careers advice at schools? Are those things that you would support? These are, these are at best, recommendations that tinker around the edges of the very real problem um, across the board. So racism in our health service, the hostile environment policies in the Home Office, the impact of racial injustice in the police force, they won't be addressed, and I have to return to this, by recommendations that seek simply tinker around the edges, that look at definitions, that look at extending school hours. They simply do not go far enough to cut to the very core of the issue of the deeply held racial injustices in our society. Okay, why has Britain, um, you know, at this moment especially, why has Britain struggled so much to try to deal with this, um, with persistent racism? I mean, it's an enormously challenging um, task. What would you recommend? What does the Runnymede Trust feel is something worthy of of examining or bringing in in order to reduce racism in society? I mean, the very first thing that a commission like this could do is find ways to implement all of the recommendations of independent reviews, reviews like the Lamy Review into the criminal justice system, the Angelini Review into death and custody, which make very clear recommendations for change. Um, and that haven't been implemented despite years um, after they've been published. So I think that could be a very good starting point for a commission like this. And also, I mean, just to say from the race equality organizations like the Running Trust and many others have been really concerned about the efficacy of any report at all. We know what needs to change. The recommendations for change are out there. We have made our own very clear recommendations around long-term uh, strategies to tackle health, the health crisis, for example, for black and ethnic minority groups, um, long-term strategies to tackle uh, in, inequalities in employment that go beyond ethnicity pay gap reporting. Uh, but they are out there. These recommendations are out there. But what this report does is it simply provides more questions around evidence. What do we mean by racism? Terminology. And fails to look at the very real changes that need to be made. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, um, uh, minority ethnic pay gap reporting, not even compulsory, actually, in the UK. Um, but, Alba... Um, do you think that the pandemic has, I mean, although it has highlighted inequalities in so many spheres, particularly in the health sphere, do you think it has made it easier or more difficult to address issues of, of racism and inequality in society? I think every single one of us was shocked to see the realities of racial inequalities in our society play out in life and death during this COVID-19 crisis, where black men were four times more likely to die than their white counterparts. It has really cut to the core of the realities of racism and racial discrimination in our healthcare service and um, in broader society as a whole. I mean, we only have to look at the economic impact of COVID-19 on black and ethnic minority groups to say that this wasn't just a health crisis. It was also a social pride crisis and an economic crisis for them. So I think it's really important that we recognise that this could be a moment for pivotal change. We have seen the stark realities of racial inequality in our society. But unfortunately, the government, as I said, nine months after the murder of George Floyd, have produced this fake leak of a report um, that, that will really just cover up 
the reality of, of racial discrimination in our society rather than take any meaningful steps to address it. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.